1: Hello and welcome to Our Changing Worlds, co-clerkincannon TNA. Aotearoa is leading the world in successful campaigns to eradicate invasive species from islands. A recent global survey showed New Zealand is responsible for nearly a quarter of all efforts. So we have made some nice safe spaces for wildlife on offshore islands. But what about on the mainland? Well, there are areas intensively trapped and monitored, there are inshore island sanctuaries, peninsula fenced sanctuaries, and a number of ring-fenced sanctuaries. Wellington's urban eco-sanctuary, Zealandia, Te Atáne, was the first. Sanctuary mountain, Maunga Tautari in the Waikato, is the largest. And the new kid on the block in Nelson is the Brook Waimarama Sanctuary. What these and others have in common is a pest proof fence and a vision to restore nature to its former glory. Achieving that vision involves taking out all of the unwanted pests and then bringing back the original inhabitants. This week, Alison Balance discovers that the old saying, many hands make light work, is particularly true when it comes to getting a fence sanctuary up and going.
2: It's a fine winter morning and I've joined an excited group at the top of the Brook Waimarama Sanctuary, just a few kilometres from downtown Nelson. Once the catchment for the Brook water supply, the large forested valley is now a thriving community effort to restore nature to Nelson. We're here to bring back a Taunga species. Invertebrate expert Ian Miller has been masterminding today's reintroduction. Good morning, Ian.
0: <laughs> Good morning, Alison.
2: <laughs> now, there's an S on the back of the suit. There is. What's in it? Snails. What kind of snails?
0: <laughs> Powelliphanta hoxteterae consobrina.
2: So these are giant carnivorous land snails.
0: They are. They are indeed. Hockstetteri is one of the bigger species.
2: So when you say a big land snail, what are you talking about?
0: 50 millimetre shell diameter. Okay. Yep.
2: So if you stuck it on the palm of your hand.
0: They would cover an awful lot of it.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's a very big snail.
0: That's a very big snail. But they do get bigger than that, get up to about 70, the really big species.
2: Wow, those are big snails. They're
0: big snails. They're long-lived to get to that size, as far as we know.
2: Okay, so how many snails have you got in that chiller?
0: Um, 30.
2: So how do you keep a, a giant carnivorous land snail in captivity?
0: <laughs> well, we kept them... In ice cream containers with perforated lids, so there was air exchange. Soil at the bottom, uh, leaf litter on top of that, and then damp moss on top of that. Keep them damp. Um, I, when I had them at home, I kept them under the house because we've got a big, spacious place under the house, and it maintains an even temperature. And like a
2: fine wine.
0: Like, like <laughs> a fine wine. <laughs> And you feed them earthworms.
2: So how Um, does a slow-moving
0: snail catch an earthworm? Catch an earthworm, yeah, with great difficulty, I imagine. But um, earthworms tend to come to the surface at night time. The snails only go out at night, basically. So being a slow-moving animal and a predator, you have to use every bit of guile you have, I guess. When you see them when they're out of the shell, they actually present a very wide but low profile. They're very flat to the ground. The shell doesn't sit up high like a garden snail shell. It drops off right at the back of the body and just lies sideways on the the ground. So they don't present a profile. And even though earthworms don't have eyes, they are light sensitive. So they would notice a sudden change in light and, and pull back into their burrows. So when the snail gets up on the earthworm, they then evert their mouth parts, which are full of very large teeth, as far as the earthworm's concerned anyway, and they basically hit the earthworm and then start sucking it in, and there's no escape once that's happened. They've got lots of teeth too. They've got lots of teeth. How many? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, I, think, I think probably 70, 80, I don't know.
2: A mouthful, OK. A mouthful
0: of teeth.
3: If everybody had a look, I think it's time to get on
2: with it. Robert Shardewinkle is the Brookway Marama Sanctuary's ecologist.
3: So, Robert, how do you release a lens now? Oh, it's a super exciting and highly technical operation. We basically open a Tupperware container, carefully take them out and release them, if you want to call that, place them into a small um, cavity under a bit of a rotting log or something. All these little cavities we have pre-marked already, so um, we know where we're going. We don't have to look for any good spots to place them and leave them there. So, yeah. Yeah pretty straightforward really why did you choose this site I think it's three main aspects that we were looking for and that is a cool climate so we want something where it doesn't get the full sun so and shade and cool um, microclimate and then we want also um, lots of moss so there's a lot of moisture in the ground it's also quite a flat site here you see Um, the sanctuary is very steep in nature so that water can run off very quickly. And then um, we need deep soils, that's another one. So, you know, deep soils where, we can, where the snails actually can find earthworms because they're not on the surface, so they need a bit of deeper soils. The
2: snail reintroduction is a small part of a grand vision.
4: So, my name is Richard Collin, most people know me as Roo. I'm the chief executive for the Brook Waimarama Sanctuary Trust.
2: So, in a nutshell, What's the sanctuary?
4: A 700 hectare nursery and uh, what I mean by that is that the work that we're conducting inside the pest fence that's 14.4 kilometres long inside the Mount Richmond Forest Park will act as a safe haven for native species not just to survive but thrive and when we talk about halo what we're expecting is that its populations increase they'll spill out into the neighbouring lands and have an effect in theory, of about 100,000 hectares. So our job really is to keep the pests out, create a haven, and to restore an ecosystem by really taking our hands off and letting Papa Tuanuku do her own thing. It's gone. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> so the first three are gone.
3: Two from the roading, two and one from the mytime. That's what you just released. Ah. We're doing an ecological restoration project here, so it's not about fluffy and cute, though of course we like that too. It is about restoration of an ecosystem and um, it's a missing species here and we get this unique chance to actually translocate Provoilephanta into the sanctuary. When will you come back and check on them? Let's give it five years, shall we? And um, when we come back in five years' time, we're just going to have a careful look here and see what we can find. And if we find lots of small snails, then we know they have been successfully reproducing. All right, seven. I think it's my turn. So this is a bit of a world first, Ian.
0: Not entirely. We know that people have artificially or in some cases illegally shifted them from other places into different sites where they've managed to hang on. Um, but this is the first officially sanctioned one, I guess you could say, the first of, permitted one. Of any Pali Fanta? Of any Pali Fanta. Yeah, there haven't been, I guess, many opportunities, because the aim is always to try and keep them within roughly their geographical range. And this this site presents a great opportunity. Yeah.
2: And what kind of habitat did these snails come from?
0: Two very interesting sites actually. The first one in the Maitai is a forestry site. It's quite tall pine forest. That was an unusual site. I mean, obviously there must be a good supply of earthworms there, but part of the reason they probably survived there is that the pine forest doesn't hold as many predators. And although there was signs of pig predation and some rat predation and so on, there wasn't a huge amount of predation sign.
2: So predation's a big issue for these snails.
0: Predation isn't is it? the issue for these snails, yeah. So if you grow to a large size and live for maybe fifteen plus years and only reach sexual maturity after maybe five or ten years, then predation really matters. And the other site we got them from in the Roding Valley, is an area that has a lot of pig activity, and in fact, one of the sites we got some from were, was cleared. It had been all churned up by pigs in quite distant past, and then the leaf litter and stuff had built up again. And the snails were living in the deepest places they could find them there because they don't have much protection against pigs.
2: So pigs eat them. Rats eat them. What else eats them?
0: Uh, possums are a major predator, um, and each of these three predators leave very specific uh, and identifiable marks on the shell, so you can always tell which one's eaten them.
2: Well, in terms of a safe, secure home, today's arrivals have come to the right place. Because the Brook Waimarama Sanctuary is surrounded by a tall, pest-proof fence, and every pig, possum, rat, stoat, whatever, that might snack on a snail has been removed apart, that is, from mice, which inveigled their way back in, just as they've done in every other fence sanctuary in the country. Keeping the sanctuary pest-free is a big job, even with the fence, but it's a task that is willingly undertaken by a large team of enthusiastic volunteers.
5: My name's Peter Jamieson and uh, I've been a volunteer here since 2007 and I am responsible for managing the sanctuary-wide survey and maintaining the pest-free status of our wonderful sanctuary.
2: 2007, that's been quite a while then that you've been involved here. That was way before the fence. It was
5: way before the fence and I must confess the fence was uh, a huge departure. Previously we were just really not winning and uh, we were catching rats and possums but we weren't winning and so the fence happened and we started winning.
2: Now it's reasonably early on a Saturday morning and I've tracked you down at the Brookway Waimarama Visitor Centre but you've already been quite busy this morning, what have you been doing?
5: Oh we have volunteers, God bless them, going up in this rain and I've been driving a ute up there as well as uh, do the organising so
2: I gather you make cakes too
5: Oh yes I definitely <laughs> make cake to bribe people to come in and visit <laughs> and to do the work
2: well it's not a great day today I have to say we can hear the rain on the roof mm. but nonetheless there are people out there on the hill volunteering their time to do
5: things. Yes they are, they're up there picking up cards baited cards that we use for monitoring tunnels.
2: Now it's busy here there are people coming and going. Yes
5: this is now, part of our <laughs> weed eating team and, <laughs> and and tree planting team.
2: Are you going weed eating today? <laughs> I'm pleased to hear it's too we wet have for to you. <laughs> But if it wasn't um, wet, you'd be out yes, weeding.
5: Yes. Yeah, and planting and
2: planting and so forth. But it's just too wet. Now, oh, completely mad. <laughs> completely <laughs> mad, she says in yes, the distance. Exactly. Now you've got a map here, Peter. This is the sanctuary. Before you just, I ask you about the sanctuary-wide survey. Quickly, just describe the sanctuary to me.
5: The sanctuary is a wonderful piece of um, challenging topography. It's uh, 700 hectares of dense native bush that's never been milled and mainly beach forest, South Island beach, and uh, it is very steep terrain, and we go from the sanctuary here at about 100 metres up to the top of the sanctuary at about 800, 900 metres. So our volunteers have to be reasonably fit, and uh, they, they traverse the sanctuary amongst a myriad of wonderful tracks created by our wonderful track cutting team.
2: How many kilometres of tracks are there? On that map there, you've got something that's absolutely
5: covered in lines. Yes, well, we have almost 3,000 tunnels up there, monitoring tunnels, and so there's about almost 150 kilometres of track that our track cutters have cut over the last 20 years, I suppose, and um, they are beautifully maintained, and it's really interesting, really. Well, I find it interesting that we now have to start weed-eating the tracks because we don't have ungulates in here anymore and they're not eating the, the undergrowth.
2: <laughs> well, that's a great sign of recovery. So a sanctuary-wide survey, what's that?
5: We have to prove to the people that provide us with species like DOC and iwi that we are pest-free. And so every three to four months, we do a complete survey of the whole sanctuary, the 3,000 tunnels and traps, and make sure that we have no footprints, no pests... And apart from mice it 's a major effort. We put baited cards out one week, and then a week later we pick them all up again and uh, We have a, a very skilled group of people who read the cards and uh, tell us if there's any evil footprints.
2: Can you show me one of these cards?
5: Yes, they have a, a sticky bit in the middle, which um, is black ink, and either end is white card and We put a bit of bait in the in the in the black ink part and the Critters come in and eat the bait and then walk out and leave footprints behind on the white card.
2: Now that's covered in footprints, but they're tiny footprints?
5: These, these, this will be a combination of mice and interestingly enough, weta because <laughs> they love the bait as well because we feed them with Nutella and peanut butter and they think that's pretty good.
2: Oh, delicious. <laughs> and so you put those out and basically that's what you're hoping to see is nothing more than mice prints and weta prints. Yes,
5: and, and the odd wire that goes in there, they quite like peanut butter as well. <laughs> so the footprints that you don't want to see would be rats. Rats and mustelids and cats.
2: How many volunteers are we talking about?
5: Well, we have a group of around about 150, um, but there's a, a hard core of around about 80 that are actively involved in Sanctuary Wide Survey.
2: That's a big effort to coordinate. It
5: is huge, and I'm lucky I have seven wonderful coordinators that help me with that. <laughs> and, uh, and I also work closely with my colleague, Kath Ballantyne, who looks after the perimeter, which is our primary source of defence. We monitor that Twice a month, and we monitor the Dock 200s in the sanctuary once a month, and then we have sanctuary-wide survey every three months.
2: So the Dock 200s, those are kill traps?
5: They're kill traps, but we hope we don't catch anything.
2: Now, I gather that there was a bit of an incursion, as you call it, earlier this year. Rats got into the sanctuary. In
5: February this year, we had rats, and typically, and sadly, they seem to always be in the valley floor, near the near the entrance to the sanctuary. And we have a couple of dangerous points here, which is one is the gate on the, on the dam, which swings open and shut when the river gets afresh. And also people coming in and out the main gate. However, we're not quite sure how they get in, but there was an incursion and we got about seven rats. Uh, we trapped them. We have a process called a response, and we put in a response grid of around about five by three traps, kill traps, and then we monitor them every twice a week for eight weeks. And until we're happy that there isn't any.
2: And this sanctuary-wide survey is really following up on that?
5: It is. It's, it's actually, to be sure, to be sure, it's really making sure. So this is actually a much bigger sanctuary-wide survey than normal. Normally we would only have um, uh, two weekends, but this is three weekends, so this is big. So that's more cakes you have to make? Yes, more cakes. <laughs> more more Shetland huffsy, yeah. <laughs> well, you've got a lot of volunteers to feed. Yes, they, and they, they do appreciate a bit of um, cake when they come off the hill.
2: They certainly will today, because yes. they, they'll be a bit wet and big-draggled when they come off yeah, the I'm
5: hill. Yeah, I'm hoping the rain's easing a wee bit, but I'm not sure.
2: <laughs> the rain does stop, and my next visit is on a much nicer day. There have been three reintroductions so far to the Brook Waimarama Sanctuary as well as the giant land snails, 40 Tiaki or South Island Saddlebacks arrived in 2021, and later that year, orange-fronted parakeets or kakariki karaka. Sean McGrath is one of a small group of very keen volunteers, keeping an eye on the kakariki, which were all bred in captivity.
6: The ones that are banded, they were raised by either Isaacs in Canterbury or I think some from Arana Park as well, who breed them as part of the prevent-them-from-extinction programme that DOC is responsible for. So they've been bred down there and shipped up to the Brook Sanctuary in five batches over the last six months, about 20 per batch.
2: When did the first ones arrive?
6: Uh, That was late November.
2: And had you seen orange-fronted parakeets, kakariki karaka before?
6: i had never seen one in my life.
2: And what was your first impression? Can you remember?
6: Well, I mean, everyone loves parakeets. Uh, they are so cute and quite different from any other bird that I'm used to seeing in the bush in New Zealand because so few of the parrot family left.
2: So you got a bit seduced by them?
6: <laughs> uh, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> I would be the first to admit that I've become completely besotted by these little creatures and I just absolutely love them. And I look forward to going up there at least two or three days a week. And if I haven't been up there for at least a couple of days, i start to really miss them.
1: It would be
2: fair to say that Sean's fellow kakariki fans, including Nerily Amos and Kevin Balitho, are just as besotted. This is their weekly trip to monitor the birds and top up the feeding stations with sunflower seeds. The kakariki were released in some tall beech forest at the back of the sanctuary.
7: The site, ironically, was actually called Kakariki Ridge. Uh, so it
2: was already called Kakariki Ridge. Yes, it ridge. was.
7: Yeah. How apt? Yeah, I understand that was because in the early days of the sanctuary, a, a, a yellow-fronted kakariki was seen on this ridge, so it got Kakariki Ridge. And now, of course, it's very appropriate. Now there's some kakariki chatter going on above yes. us. Yes. Yep. Yes, there are some birds in the canopy.
2: Do you speak Kakariki? Do you know what they're saying?
7: <laughs> no. <laughs> Although there are there are different calls for different purposes, like um, you know, if they're calling their mate off the nest or um, calling their young to them. And there's also quite a distinct difference between the the sound of the call for the younger birds um, versus the more mature ones.
2: Oh, there's one just flown into one of the feeders. Yep. Yeah. In fact there's two, there's one on the tree above it. Yeah. Those are beautiful little jewel green birds, aren't they?
7: They're fabulous, aren't they? Yeah.
2: So it didn't stick around because there's actually nothing on the feeder for it at the moment. (laughs) So how do the feeders work?
7: Uh, The feeders are a a timed feeder with the the reservoir of sunflower seeds above and a small motor mechanism that um, transfers the seed down onto the bottom tray. Uh, That happens four times a day and um, so then they're, f- they're free to to eat it.
8: I can see two kakriki in the canopy, or halfway up the canopy, and, and so we try and spot bands on their legs, but they hopefully will come down to the feeders. They're possibly looking at whether the feeders have feed at the moment, but they're also potentially, they might be looking at a nest hole in a tree just down the hill, so that's what I might go down and look and see if they're approaching that tree. Well, there could be a nest hole, and they sometimes nest even at winter, we're told. So it'll be interesting if we do spot a nest behaviour, nesting behaviour, at this time of year. So when the birds were released, did it take them long to to pair up and start nesting? (laughs) No. (laughs) Some within a few days or a week. Um, They're quite precocious, (laughs) six months or less, and... They've never seen each other. The girls and the boys are put in aviaries separately. And then when we let them out, off they go. And with very short time, (laughs) they're finding each other. It's really quite wonderful. (laughs) So you've had a few babies already? We have. We've had quite a few fledglings appear. We've seen them uh, poking their heads out of nests. That would be nestlings. And once they fly, the dad brings them... To food, and sometimes that's the feeders, they use the feeders. So we see these little pink legged fledglings flying and they're a bit wobbly, they land and they stumble, and and then very soon, within a short time, their, their legs colour up to the adult colour, their orange fronts colour up and become, and they look like adults. And it's we couldn't tell unless only we know that they've got no bands on their legs, so we know they weren't. Released here, they are newborns. They're our babies. They're Brook Waimarama Sanctuary citizens. Yes. LGBs, little green birds. (laughs) Or OFPs, orange-fronted parakeets. Or Kakariki Karaka. We've got all sorts of names for them. So they're one of the rarest of our parakeets? I believe that they're the most endangered of our parakeets. That's right. And so this is an attempt to keep the genetic diversity going we, each release has had different genetics here so it's trying to keep the population um, healthy and diverse yes the 11am release is just starting is happening yep the sound of breakfast
7: yes <laughs> Good morning <laughs> yeah, they get
8: four feeds a day. This is a supplementary feed. So the kakariki do feed on other things like seeds in the trees, insects. So there's a bit of action there Leigh. Can you tell me what's happening? A feeder, I can see four feeders from this point and one of them has two kakariki on it. Both of them are banded. I haven't yet identified what the bands are and they're feeding furiously. They're quite hungry. Another one Another feeder, I can see one kakariki on. They're very efficient. They grab a sunflower seed, they husk it, chuck the husk out and eat the kernel. It's quite fun to watch. Kakariki
2: karaka nest in holes high up in the beech trees, while down on the forest floor below, Neralee, Kevin and Sean have spent lots of time trying to work out what's happening way up there.
6: It's a job for the patient, no, I'll say it's a job for the extremely patient. Most of the time, you're lying on your back or leaning against a tree. You are, uh, have your lunch and off to the, your left. You have your radio to your right. You have your binoculars on your chest. And you're basically watching... Uh, little hole in a beech tree maybe 15 or 20 metres up off the ground and you watch it like a hawk. You don't take your eyes off it for more than a couple of seconds. You may have two hours there where absolutely nothing happens and then the father will arrive possibly in silence. Maybe he makes a little bit of a honey I'm home chirp as, as he arrives and then you you monitor the nest by watching the behavior of the pair and that tells you what's going on inside the nest so you can actually have a pretty good idea of the stage of the nest by by monitoring the behavior of the parents
2: well the kakariki sound very motivated about nesting you sound very motivated about coming out to watch them so what is it about them that motivates you
7: I guess it's um, it's intriguing and it's leading edge of, of science in the sense that uh, there's still a lot that's not known about them. You know, every observation helps to put together a bit more of the puzzle.
2: And this is not the only volunteer work you do in the sanctuary, though?
7: No, no. This is one of my hats. How many years have you been volunteering here for? Quite a long time. Hey, nearly. How long have we been volunteering here for? So nearly shouts out 2004 you started. 2004, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite addictive.
2: <laughs> Have you seen changes since the fence went in and since they got rid of the pests?
7: Oh yes, yes, it's massive. The understory that's here, there's bushes everywhere and in, in many places it's even more dense than this. The number of birds has increased. It's quite marked the difference.
2: Sounds very rewarding.
7: Yes, yes it is, yeah. In fact, it's a, it's a bit of it spoils us because now we go to um, like the bush on the west coast or whatever, and we're, we're kind of astounded by how quiet it is. Whereas, whereas here, you know, there's almost always birdsong.
2: So, what's your motivation for coming and doing all the work here in the sanctuary, nearly?
8: Oh, being outdoors, doing something for nature. I've decided that I'm retired from my official work, and now I'm an eco-warrior
2: orange-fronted parakeets, the kakariki, Karaka, what are they bringing to the sanctuary?
6: I think they're bringing us an idea of what New Zealand used to look like before humans arrived and brought in rats, states, weasels, ferrets, possums, the, the predators that have brought these species close to extinction. So it's just like we're trying to undo damage done by predators brought in by humans.
2: How long have you been involved as a volunteer at the sanctuary for?
6: Probably only about three years, but I'm making up for lost time.
2: So you have seen it before any of the reintroductions were made, so what, what, what is the baseline for you, and what do you hope to see in, say, another 10 or 20 years?
6: What I hope to see is Kakariki karaka being uh, just a completely normal bird in there, um, in the way that you go up there now and you can't not hear and see bellbirds everywhere, tuis, robins just everywhere i've watched that just in the last few years watched the populations of those birds grow and i would just like to see the kakariki karaka grow in exactly the same way they'll just grow and fill the place with themselves until the sanctuary is saturated by them as it was 200 years ago i, th- I think the sanctuary will just be a place for people to go to get give them a little bit of an indication. As to how things used to be and how things could be in the future if we achieve predator free 2050, which I hope we do. it's going to be very, very difficult, <laughs> but um, in the meantime we need to have little pockets there to give people an idea of what what we are aiming for. And in the meantime, of course, you know prevent the extinctions of some birds that that simply will be will become extinct if we don't actively work on avoiding it.
1: Thanks, Alison. Many thanks also to Ian Miller, Robert Shadevinkel, Rue Collins, Peter Jemison, Sean McGrath, Kevin Bolitho and Neroli Amis, all who work or volunteer at Nelson's Brook Waimarama sanctuary. This episode was produced by Alison Balance. Sound engineering was by William Saunders and Tim Walken is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. If you'd like to know more about the sanctuary, or other fenced sanctuaries around the country, such as Zealandia, Maunga Tauteri, or Orokonui, just search on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz ourchangingworld. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter or Facebook at rnzscience, or you can email the show, ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. I'm Claire Kincannon. Thanks so much for listening. Kia pai, tō wiki.